Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, in the word of the sovereign Lord reads, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into, the, into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the word of the Lord. Pastor and author John Piper once wrote, This is the rock where we stand when the dark clouds gather and the floods lick our feet. Justification is by grace alone, not mixed with our merit. Through faith alone, not mixed with our works. On the basis of Christ alone, not mingling His righteousness with ours. To the glory of God alone and not ours. So, here we are at the place where we were looking forward to last week, this idea of suffering. And one of the truths that many well-meaning Christians, people who have big hearts, people who genuinely want to see people come to faith, when they want to explain the gospel to people, the truth that they tend to ignore is the truth that the Christian life does not promise an absence of suffering. This is something that many people, especially immature Christians who want to share the hope of Christ with other people, they don't want to talk about suffering. They actually don't want to to even believe this truth. But the truth that, that faith in Christ is not a life without suffering. But in spite of that, I've heard people with hearts filled full of compassion, but with horrible theology filled in their heads, say to people that they love and people that are close to them, just turn to Jesus and your life is magically going to get better. We, we hear it all the time. That's the American version of the gospel, it seems like. Just give your life to Jesus and all your problems are going to disappear. Just, just turn to Jesus and your suffering is going to come to an end. You know, you're just going to be better. You're going to feel better. You're going to do better. Just turn to Jesus. And they believe with all and first of all, I just want you to understand, I, under, I know why they would say that. I understand the motivation. I understand that they want to believe that. They believe with all their hearts. If I'll just somehow convince them to try Jesus, then they'll be saved and they'll go to heaven when they die. If, if I can just convince them and even maybe pull the wool over their eyes a little bit to just try Jesus and believe in Jesus, then things will get better for them. I just need to convince them to make a profession of faith and then suddenly everything will will get better. But the problem with that is twofold. Number one is simply that it's not true. 
The promise isn't come to Jesus and you will have a pain-free, problem-free life. Because if that's the case, we all need our money back, right? The promise of the gospel isn't come to Jesus and everything will get better in your life and you will never suffer. In fact, Jesus says that actually it's going to be the opposite of that. He says in John chapter 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you so that you may have peace in this world. You will have, not maybe, might have, you will have tribulation or suffering. But take heart, he says, I have overcome the world. The Apostle Paul is going to say later on in Romans chapter 8, he's going to say this. He says, if we are children, then heirs, and heirs of God, then fellow heirs with Christ, provided, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Paul also says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, for, you have been, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says to Timothy, who is struggling as a pastor trying to rebuild a church that's falling apart, he says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You're going to suffer. So no, it's not true. Coming to Jesus will not end your suffering in this life. Now, please, I want you to hear me and don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. This is not fatalism. Can God heal people? Yes, and he often does. Right? If you've been a Christian very long at all, you know that he does. You've seen it. You've witnessed it. Can God put marriages back together? Yes, he often does. We have witnessed that. I have witnessed that. Can God rescue people from their suffering? Yes, and oftentimes he does. Oftentimes, he does rescue people from, from dire suffering. But that is not the promise of the gospel. It's not the promise of the gospel. So it's not true that coming to Jesus is going to end all of your suffering in this life. Number two is the other, pro the other problem is those who promise that, those who say those things, fail to understand they're trying to entice people to come to Christ for the wrong reasons. As, as noble as their intentions are, they are not bringing them to Christ for the right reasons. They are trying to tell them to come to Christ because of the gifts that they think they may get from Him. They're trying to persuade them that the gifts are more important than the giver of the gifts. They want the perceived benefits of the relationship with Christ rather than the relationship itself, which then leads to number three. Our real problem is not suffering in this life. Now, I understand there are going to be times it's going to feel like it. Right? There will be those moments when you're in pain, it will feel like that is the problem in your life. There's going to be times when the world around you is so dark, you're going to feel like that is the problem of your life. That when somebody you love gets a cancer diagnosis, that is going to be the greatest problem you think you've ever faced. But I want you to understand it might feel like it, but it's not. Our real problem is that we were at odds with a holy, righteous, and just God. That was what Paul took two, took nearly three chapters of his letter up to the Romans to explain that all of mankind is corrupt and in rebellion to God. And because of that, God's wrath and judgment abided on all of us. And by the way, that is far worse than anything we can suffer in this life. 
In fact, the suffering that we would experience here and now in this life, as bad as it may be, is but the faintest of shadows of the real suffering that will be experienced for those who die in their sins. It is a proverbial walk in the park. And so our real problem is not a temporal suffering in this life. Our real problem is that we, we, is that we will one day face an endless eternity of suffering if we're apart from God that we will spend eternity apart from his life-giving presence if we're not made right with him through Jesus Christ, which then leads to the good news that Paul talks about. He explained in chapter 3, verse 4, in chapter 3 and 4, he said, Jesus, he said that God sent his son Jesus into the world to make atonement for our sins and to offer us the righteousness, a righteousness that we need to have a relationship with him as a gift of grace so we can be reconciled to God. And through Christ, we not only have reconciliation, but the forgiveness of our sins <clears throat> by faith in Christ. And we come to him, and we are to come to him because Jesus is our greatest need, not what he offers us in this temporal world. Jesus is our greatest need. And because of that, he then is our greatest treasure and he is our greatest hope. That's why we come to him. Even if in this life we suffer and suffer horribly, we can still hold on to the fact that he is our supreme treasure and hope. Suffering in this life is not something that we can escape by a profession of faith in Jesus. In fact, it seems the Bible promises that we will suffer. It's a promise, it seems. Again, Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you. Hear these words. It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, for Christ's sake, that you not only believe, but you also suffer for his sake. And second, in 2 Timothy 3.12, again, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Suffering is a part of the Christian life. Just as the sun coming up in the east and going down in the west is a part of this life here. Suffering is something that we all will experience. Just read your Bible. We are called to suffer for our faith in Christ in some way. But I want you to notice what Paul says in today's text. What Paul says in today's text ought to make you sit up and pay attention and think, wait a minute, I need to really understand this. Paul says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then right after he says that, he says, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. You need to think about that for a minute. Because there's not obscurity in the language here. Sometimes I'll have conversations with people that say, why can't the Bible just simply be more straightforward? I said, well, some places are really straightforward and some aren't so straightforward. This is one of those places. It's pretty straightforward. There's no obscurity here at all. It's not a mistranslation. Paul's words are clear. Paul says, we rejoice in our suffering. And the Greek word here that's translated as rejoice conveys the idea of not just rejoicing, but actually boasting in or glorying in our suffering. Try that on for size. That's what Paul's saying here. 
And, and the word suffering is derived from a word that means pressure. It literally means to be hemmed in, like hemmed into a corner with no way out. It's the idea, right, behind this word that it isn't so much like suffering from a cold or a headache, you know what I mean? It's, it conveys the idea of persecution, of tribulation, of great weight being pushed down on you. It can also mean like an internal pressure coming from being in a position where you have no options. And so in light of what Paul says here, he says, so not only do we rejoice in our hope and the glory of God, which is a good thing, he says that we rejoice, we glory, and we boast about or we're proud of our suffering or persecutions, our trials and our tribulations. And I don't care what you say. Humanly speaking, humanly speaking, that does not sound like a good thing. Rejoicing in our trials and suffering seems counterintuitive from a human perspective, doesn't it? I mean, personally, I don't like suffering. I do what I can to avoid suffering when I can. I mean, I'm not a masochist, right? I don't derive pleasure from my own pain. If you do, then you need to make an appointment with me and come see me because we need to talk about that because there's something wrong. The truth is, I don't want to suffer if I can avoid it. I don't want conflict if I can prevent it. I want to feel good. I don't want to feel aches and pains in the morning. I, I, I want to be cool in the summer, hence the cooler. I want to be warm in the winter. When I'm thirsty, I want to have some water. When I'm hungry, I want to eat some food. I'm hungry a lot, okay? So don't judge me. I want to be able to drive and not walk 10 miles, right? I like to walk, but not that much. I want my clothes to be comfortable. I want my bed to be soft, but not too soft, right? I want medication when I'm sick so that I can get better quicker. I want people to think well of me. That's my human response. That's what I want. If I can avoid suffering, I'm going to do what I can do to avoid it, if I can help it. But Paul says here in this letter to the Romans, not only will we endure suffering, not only will we grit our teeth in and bear it, which we do oftentimes, he says that we will rejoice in our suffering. And again, I have to just insist, this is not some mistake in grammar or theology. Paul is clear. In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, agrees with him. In James chapter 1, verse 2, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all, not, hey, it's, it is what it is, but no, count it all joy. When we endure suffering, we are to count it as joy. And just in case you think that, well, maybe, again, maybe James misunderstood and Paul got his theology backwards. Jesus himself said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And if you've spent any time around me at all, you'll know this word blessed means happy. It means joyful. It means fortunate. It means to be in an enviable position. Jesus is saying blessed or happy or in an enviable position is the person who is suffering persecution. And just in case 
there was some mistake in what he said. He then goes on and says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then he says, rejoice and be glad. The, problem, the Bible promises that in this life we are going to encounter suffering. And then it says, not only will we encounter suffering, but that we will have the ability to not just get through it, but to rejoice in our suffering. In fact, we're even encouraged, and I would even say commanded to do that. And that's, and the thing that we need to see here is Paul mentions this truth in a section where he is explaining the blessings that we get from the gospel. This isn't just, hey, by the way, you're going to suffer, but you're going to get through it. This is him explaining the blessings of the gospel. If you remember, chapter 5 begins the transition from where Paul has been explaining what the gospel is, the bad news about who we are and what we've done, and the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. He transitions from that to, to explaining the blessings that the gospel gives to the believer. In chapter 5, verse 1, we read last, the last few weeks, Therefore, since we have, we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Paul says that those who are in Christ have the blessing of being at peace with God. And he says that those and, and those who, who are in Christ have the blessing of having direct access to God. And then he says they have the, the blessing of the full sphere of God's grace, which by the way is the foundation on which we stand in this life. And then he says we have the blessing of hope in the glory of God. And now in this same section, in this same context, Paul says, not only that, we rejoice in our suffering. Which then should cause us to ask, how? I mean, I'm human like you. I look at this stuff and I go, how? Right? How do we rejoice in suffering? I mean, it's one thing to read Bible verses and throw Bible verses at people when they're, when they're going through hard times, right? Well, you're going through a hard time. Well, it says that you, know, you, you can rejoice in your suffering. Okay, thank you. How? How is this a blessing of the gospel? How can Paul possibly say that having the ability to rejoice in suffering is a blessing that God gives to those who believe the gospel? Not to mention, how is it even possible that we can rejoice or boast in or glory in our sufferings at all? Again, it seems counterintuitive at first, but then notice Paul says, what he says next, he says, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing something. He says we rejoice in our suffering because there is something that we know. There's something we know that gives us the ability to rejoice in our suffering. Well, what is that? What could possibly, what could we possibly know that somehow gives us the ability to rejoice in something that people want to avoid? What can we possibly know that gives us the ability to boast in suffering and persecution? Well, Paul says, we know right, that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. One of what you realize is this is actually the same answer that James gives. I don't know if you realize that. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know... 
the basis of how you can have joy is you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance and let steadfastness have its full effect and that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. Paul and James both essentially are saying the same thing here. Right? By the way, some people will say that James and Paul, that theologically they're at odds. They will say, well, you know, because James says faith without works is dead. And Paul says, you know, you're saved by grace apart from works, that somehow that they're not theologically on the same page. I'm going to tell you, people that say that just don't understand James and Paul. Because when you read the text in context, you understand they were of the same mind, which is Christ's. But they're saying basically the same thing here. Right? It's very clear. They both agree we can rejoice in suffering because we know something. We know that suffering produces endurance or steadfastness, and that endurance in turn produces character, which is related to maturity or being made perfect, which then we'll talk about in a few minutes. And that mature character then produces in us hope, and that hope doesn't put us to shame. Paul says, that's what we know, which then caused me to ask the question, okay, great. How do I know that? I mean, let's just be honest. I've read this in my lifetime hundreds of times, and probably the first hundred times I read it, I was like, okay, God, I'm reading what you're saying, and I'm going to take your word for it, but I don't understand this. I don't get it. I mean, I do understand that I'm going to suffer in this life because Jesus said it's going to happen. Because Jesus said it, I believe it. And I believe your word when you say that we can rejoice in our suffering. I mean, I believe it. I don't know how, but I believe it because you said it. But God, you also said that we can rejoice in our suffering because we know something. Not just believe, but that we actually know something. And the word that Paul uses here for believe is the word ido, which means to, to not only know something, but to know something from experience or to be able to see it or that it's obvious, it's evident. In other words, we can rejoice in suffering because it's evident that suffering produces character. It's, it's apparent that it does. It has been demonstrated. We can rejoice in suffering because we know from experience that suffering produces endurance to which many times in my life I would say, I really don't know that. No, it's not always been obvious to me in my suffering. How can I possibly know this? And then trying to understand what Paul's getting at here for years, I follow the chain that Paul lays out here, how they're all connected, and I would try to make sense of what he's saying. I, would, I, would, I was trying to understand how the pieces lined up, that we rejoice in hope, of the glory of God, and we can then rejoice in our suffering knowing that suffering, as horrible as it is, produces endurance, and somehow that endurance produces in us some character, and that character then itself produces hope, and that hope then wouldn't put us to shame. And over, in, in, and over the years, I would, I would try to understand how the links come together. How does suffering produce endurance? How does endurance produce character? How does character produce hope? And then I come to understand, ultimately, the way the chain works itself out is this. Suffering itself ultimately produces hope. Look at the connection, how they all connect one to the next. Ultimately, you start with, with suffering and you end up at hope. Suffering produces hope. How is that even possible? How do we know this, Paul? How is it apparent? How is it obvious? Well, 
I would try to see the connection. I would try to find encouragement in this as I experienced suffering. But I would struggle to understand what Paul was getting at. And then I read it again. And I, f- I finally saw it. The reason why I struggled with this is because I was missing something important here. I was missing an important word that I was thinking was disconnected somehow. I missed an important connection. And so let me read the text again and let's see if you help me or that you can see this with me. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And that hope does not put us to shame because that's what I was missing. Because I was always trying to figure out Are these things connected or disconnected? It just seems so weird that you have this chain of things and all of a sudden you have all the stuff that comes behind because. That's the key word actually in this entire text. That's the word that makes all of this make sense. The word that indicates the cause and effect relationship here between suffering and hope. In fact, I think we can actually shorten the sentence down to make it make a little bit more sense in order to get the heart of the issue. Not only that, we, but we rejoice in our suffering because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I think if you shorten that down, you get right to the heart of the issue. I'm going to read that again. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That is the answer, brothers and sisters, right there. That's the answer to this question. The key to understanding the whole thing that Paul is communicating here, instead of focusing on the endurance and the character and the hope and being put to shame, we need to see the real gospel blessing in this text, the real gospel blessing that Paul is talking about that causes us to endure suffering and also rejoice in it. You see, we can rejoice in our suffering We can rejoice in our suffering because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the point that Paul is driving at. We have the ability to rejoice in and glory in and boast about our suffering because God's love is being poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who God has given to us as a gift. And because of that, then we absolutely know then that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope doesn't put us to shame. We know that. We know what we know about rejoicing and suffering and how it produces something in us because God is pouring His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That is the answer. And notice Paul says, the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And this right here is where we need to spend a little bit of time this morning thinking about. Because this is the blessing of the gospel. We're not brought into a right relationship with with God through Christ and then somehow left alone for the rest of our lives. We have been given the gift of God the Holy Spirit. That is the gospel blessing Paul's talking about here. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. In fact, let's put this in context and think about the blessings that Paul has been unpacking for us. 
He says, those who are justified by faith, first of all, have peace with God, right? Remember, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. That's the, that's the first part of the blessing of Romans chapter five. He said, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we talked about what that means. It means not only an ending of hostilities between us and God and that the war between us is over, but, and, and, and not only that, the judgment and his wrath has been done away with. We are also reconciled to God as family and we live in a harmonious relationship with God and his will. That's the first blessing of the gospel where we are once at odds with God, we are now at peace with God. But not only that, Paul says, by faith in Christ, we have access to God. We've been given unrestrained, unconditional access into the presence of God. We talked about that last week. Once you're justified by faith in Christ, you have a permanent audience with the King. Once you have faith in Christ, you are forever in the presence of the King who is always there to hear you. You can always boldly come before the throne of grace anytime you need anything. Where before mankind was separated from God, which was visually represented by the temple and the veil, that has all been torn down, that is all gone. We can come into the presence of God anytime, anywhere, for any reason. That is one of the blessings of the gospel. But also, by faith, we have access to the full sphere of God's grace, which is the foundation, as Paul says, on which we stand. All of that God offers us in his grace is ours. Justification, being made right with God. Sanctification, being made clean and set apart progressively by the Holy Spirit. Adoption, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation, having a righteous standing before God. And ultimately, the hope of glorification where finally God sets all things right. This is why Paul says those who are justified by faith have hope in the glory of God. That is another blessing. We have hope in an inheritance that cannot be taken from us. An inheritance that cannot be shaken. A hope that cannot be removed. And then in today's text, Paul tells us those who are justified by faith in Christ have the ability to rejoice in suffering because they've been given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the gift of the gospel. It's the gift of God's grace. The Holy Spirit who's with us, but who also then dwells within us. When you are justified by faith in Christ, you have been given that very moment you believe the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit is not given, the gift of the Holy Spirit is given to us at our justification. The moment you believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to take up residence inside of you. Reminded of that by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. He says, do, not, do you not know that you are God's temple and that, the God, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? This is the truth that gives us strength, right? That God is perpetually with us. God, the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a blessing of the gospel. His presence in our lives is a blessing from the gospel. In fact, I want you to know, or I want you to understand that you can't even have the other blessings without the Holy Spirit. You cannot have peace with God without the Holy Spirit. You cannot have access to God's presence without the Holy Spirit. You cannot have hope of a future glory without him. Why? 
Because the Holy Spirit is the one who applies God's redemption and salvation to us. He is the one who unites us to Christ. The thing that we need to remember is that salvation is the work of all of God, the entire triune God. God the Father in eternity past is the one who decreed the plan of redemption. He's the one who ordains our salvation. He's the one who decreed the covenant of redemption. And then God the Son is the one who actually purchases our redemption. He's the one who through his perfect life secures for us a righteousness that is not our own. And on the cross, he makes atonement for our sins. And it's by his blood that we are purchased. It is by his blood that we are redeemed. That's why Paul says, you were bought at a price. And that's why Jesus, by the way, is the object of our faith. Because he's the one who accomplishes redemption for us. But the Holy Spirit is the one who actually applies redemption to us. He's the one who brings us into the realm of redemption. He's the one who actually unites us to Christ. Well, how does he accomplish that? Well, first, the Holy Spirit is the one who prepares us to receive redemption. No one is going to receive redemption without the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not going to happen. And he does this by convicting us of our sin. It's the Holy Spirit that helps us to finally see who we really are in light of God's holy word. It's the Holy Spirit that helps us to finally see our need for salvation. As Charles Spurgeon has said of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit breaks up our, the hard soil of our hearts with the plow of conviction. He convicts us of our sin and he changes our hearts. He takes our hearts of stone and transforms them into hearts of flesh. He prepares the soil of our hearts to receive the seed of God's word. And then he regenerates us unto salvation. It is through the power of the Holy Spirit that we are born again. Jesus tells Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can man be born again when, he's of, when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of, of, of water, which is physical birth and the spirit regeneration, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then he emphasizes that by saying that which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of spirit is spirit. The Holy Spirit applies redemption to us by preparing us and then he regenerates us. And once we're regenerated and once we are justified, the Holy Spirit is the one who guarantees our salvation. He is the guarantee that God will actually save us. He becomes the guarantee of the fact that we belong to God and that we have hope in the future. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says this, In Him, Christ, you also, when you heard the word of, the, of, of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee or literally the earnest deposit given to us by God promising that God will finish what he started in us. God put up the third member of the Trinity as an earnest deposit guaranteeing that he will redeem us as he promised to do so. 
The Holy Spirit is the seal on our lives that bears witness to the fact that we belong to God. And notice again, Paul says in Ephesians, when you heard the word of truth, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, the moment you believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And, And this is important for us. The thing that we need to settle in our minds is the truth that we were given the Holy Spirit the moment we believed. In other words, the filling and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit comes to us when we are justified by faith in Christ. When we put our faith in Jesus, we were made right with God. And in that moment, we have the Holy Spirit given to us, which means that being filled with the Holy Spirit is not some second event in salvation history. You don't get saved and later on get filled with the Holy Spirit. You receive the Holy Spirit the moment you believe because you cannot have salvation without Him. Now, I don't care if you were a continuationist or a cessationist with respect to the sign gifts. We have people in our church that fall all over the spectrum on this particular issue. Those who believe in the sign gifts and that they are still for today, and those who say, nope, Those have ceased a long time ago. And there are people all in between those two positions. What I do know is that all of them are sincere, Bible-believing Christians and people who are are trusting in Christ by faith alone. And people who are members of this church and people that I, without hesitation, embrace as brothers and sisters in Christ. So I really personally don't care how what part of the spectrum a person falls on. What What I must proclaim, though, and what I must insist on What the scriptures teach is that we have the Holy Spirit given to us the moment we believe. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit the moment we have faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit comes to live in us the moment we are justified. And from that moment, He then leads us and guides us and teaches us the truth. He draws us closer to Christ. He leads us into righteousness and he continually bears witness to us that we belong to God, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself, the Spirit himself bears witness with us that our with our spirit, that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, and heirs of God, then fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may be glorified with Him. The Holy Spirit is the one who bears witness that we are God's children. He is the one who confirms for us that we indeed are saved, and we have that gift from the very beginning of our relationship with God by faith. And what does He do? How does this Holy Spirit confirm our salvation? How does he convince us that we are children of God? How does he help us to be able to rejoice in our suffering? He does this by pouring out the love of God into our hearts. That's the answer. We rejoice in our suffering because God's love is being poured into our hearts by God, the Holy Spirit. This is the answer to how. This 
is how it's possible for us not only to endure suffering, but to rejoice in it. How is it possible for, for us to glory and boast in persecution? How is it possible for us to know that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and that produces hope? How is that all possible? It's possible because God, the Holy Spirit, is actively pouring out the love of God into our hearts. That is how. Right? And we need to be clear because some people will say, well, this is just referring to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit himself, like at Pentecost. That is not what is in view here. Look at the language. The Spirit's not pouring himself out. There is an outpouring, but it's an outpouring of God's love. Which also gives us something to be, to be clear about. This is not about the Holy Spirit giving us the ability to love God, right? This is not about, you know, us loving God. This is about the Holy Spirit pouring into our frail, weak, wandering, broken hearts the efficacious and life-changing and hope-inspiring love of God. This is the Holy Spirit pouring into our porous, broken, leaky, frail, unfaithful at times hearts, a limitless stream of God's love for us. You see, we're not given a measure of God's love that somehow we need to preserve in our hearts to hold on to, right? We're not given a little bit of God's love that we can keep you know, from spilling over out of our lives, lest we lose it. Right? We're not given a little bit of God's love that somehow we need to kind of hold back and not give too much of it away because we need to have some in reserve for ourselves lest we run out. No, we are given an endless supply of his love. This is an outpouring, an overflowing. There is more love being poured into our hearts than we will ever be able to use and need. There is more love that God is pouring into our hearts than we can even possibly fathom. The Holy Spirit is pouring into our hearts an abundance of God's love. And what, what this is communicating to us is the truth that yes, God does love you. Even you. Yes, God loves you. And yes, he redeemed you. And yes, you, yes, you belong to him. You are one of his children. And even more than that, he's never going to leave you and he's never going to forsake you. And he's never going to leave you behind. And all the things that happen in this world will work out for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And that love he's pouring out into your heart is proof that you have been called according to his purpose. And yes, the hope that awaits you vastly outweighs the temporal things that you're going through here and now. That is why Paul can say with such confidence in Romans chapter 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's why you can also say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us a, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The reason we can rejoice or boast in our suffering is because we have been given the Holy Spirit who dwells in us continually, pouring out the love of God into our hearts, reminding us who we belong to and reminding us of our hope. That's how we know. 
That's how we know for a fact that suffering will produce endurance and that endurance will produce character and character will produce hope and that hope will not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's the answer. And that's how we rejoice in our suffering because we are convinced by God's love continually being poured into our hearts that we belong to Him. And if we belong to Him, we can count on Him to do exactly what He has promised to do. And He has promised that if we believe the gospel, we are forgiven of our sins. Not maybe, that we are and that we're freed from the wrath of God and we are adopted into his family and we have a hope that one day everything will be right and we will live with joy forever in his presence where there is no more tears and no more death and no more pain or sorrow. That is how we can rejoice in suffering because we are confident that no matter what we endure in this life, no matter how dark the circumstances become, no matter how painful our wounds are, no matter how bitter the betrayal that we experience, God is with us and God is for us and nothing can thwart His plans and nothing can separate us from His love. We can rejoice because the sovereign King who controls all things loves us and has made peace with us and given us direct access into His presence and granted the whole sphere of His grace and nothing can take that away from us. Actually, where Paul's going is Romans chapter 8. And just to give you a preview, this is what he says. What shall we say to these things? Brothers and sisters, this ought to be your verse for the... for for the darkness in your life. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God right now? Who indeed is right now interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We are regarded sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things. We are more than conquerors through Him who what? Who loved us. Whose love is being poured out into our hearts continually. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love that the Holy Spirit who has been given to us continually pours out into our hearts. And it's because of that we know that suffering, even the worst kind of suffering produces endurance, which means patience and steadfastness. It's the idea of growing in patience. The idea of being patiently enduring because we're looking at the object of our hope. You're looking towards Christ, the inheritance that has been promised, patiently enduring, keeping our eyes set on Jesus, rejoicing what we're going through, not because we enjoy the pain, but we know that our hope will see us through that. 
See, our hope is not in medication or in economics or governments. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. You endure because you hope in Christ because he won't fail you. And then endurance builds character. The idea behind that word is maturity. It's really what Paul's driving at here. That as we endure, we, we are building a character. And what he's trying to point out, the word actually means to be proven through trial. The idea here is that our suffering creates in us a maturity in our character, a maturity in our faith in God. John Stott says that there is no, um, we cannot learn endurance without suffering because without suffering, there's nothing to endure. That endurance produces in us the proof that we belong to God. As James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet all kinds of trials and various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness, that endurance, have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Right? Enduring suffering produces confidence that we indeed belong to God, which is the hope that we're holding on to, and it produces a mature character that demonstrates that we are, are definitely of the faith, which, by the way, is why we hold on to the, the doctrine and the perseverance of, of the saints. Those who truly believe, those who truly are saved, will endure even through the worst kinds of suffering. But those who are not saved who appear to have a relationship with Christ, when trials come, they will not endure. In fact, that's what Jesus tells us. It's the heart of the parable of the sower. He said, he said some people will hear the, the word of God, right? And that the, Satan will snatch it away because their hearts are hard. And then some people, because they have rocky soil, will receive it with great joy and it will grow up quickly, but it won't endure. Why? Because when persecution comes, they're going to fall away, proving they were not of the faith. But those who have hearts that were made good soil, whose hearts are prepared by the Holy Spirit, that word takes root and will produce in them fruits that will endure even in the face of persecution. Suffering produces in us a mature character, and that character then produces in us a hope. Why? Because that mature character is further proof that we belong to God. It's further proof that we are one of his children. It's further proof that we have the assurance of what God has promised us. And because of that, our hope is never put to shame because we are convinced God's love for us because the Holy Spirit continually pours his love into our hearts. Which then points, I think, to the next section that we're going to be coming up to. And again, as a preview, connecting the dots here with God's love. Paul says in Romans 5.8, but God shows or demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the truth that the Holy Spirit continually reminds us of. That is the love that he pours out into our hearts. Christ died for you. This idea of Christ's historical death is important that it is historical, but it's not abstract. It's real and it's concrete and it's personal to you. If you have faith in Christ, He died for you. Which is proof that God loves you. God pours His love 
into our hearts, the power of the Holy Spirit. That is how we know that suffering ultimately leads to assurance of our hope. The Holy Spirit remaining with us and for us reminds us that Christ himself died for us. Now, what do we do with this, wrapping up? I think this is where we have to come back to like we've been before. We need to take God at his word here. We need to take God at his word. That we will suffer, but that we can rejoice in that suffering because God loves us and has proven that time and time and time again. And then we ultimately know that our hope is not the end of our momentary suffering. We can pray for that for sure, right? But that's not our hope. Our hope ultimately is the fact that God loves us and has already done all we need to redeem us. Because salvation is 100% the work of the Lord. The second thing that we need to do then is this truth needs to then become the motivation with which how we love other people. Because I'm going to tell you, you need, when people are in difficult circumstances, is to go with the love of God and the grace of God, right? And yes, you can tell them, hey, by the way, you can rejoice in the suffering or you can just say, hey, you know, I know you're going through a lot right now, but I can tell you what I know for a fact is that God is with you, God is for you, and that he loves you, and he has promised to see you through this all the way to the very end. And in that then, you will get through this. That's the hope that we have to offer other people. And for those who are not in Christ, now more than ever, we need to tell them They need to hear the gospel because there is no other hope apart from it. So let us be the people who go out into the world and storm the gates of hell and share the gospel with our neighbors and our friends. Because we have a hope that will see us through even the worst of suffering. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.